In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do, and to be with us, O Lord, at all times, and to teach us your ways. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, yours as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you again for joining for another session of the Q&A. Um, we'll just uh, dive right into the Q&A tonight. Uh, number one, uh, a close friend and I have agreed to keep each other accountable, to encourage each other in our spiritual discipline. How can I be a good accountability partner without adding pressure on the other person? Does your reverence have any tips? Um, I think it's very good to have someone to be accountable with, um, but at the same time, we shouldn't uh, think that this accountability partner is a replacement for the father of confession. So it's good to um, maybe like agree on certain spiritual practices with our father of confession, like in terms of uh, you know, how many prayers we're going to pray and Bible reading and spiritual book and fastings and prostrations and all these other things that we agree to. And then if we have um, a close friend that shares a lot of the same practices that we have, so it should be someone who is of a, of a similar spiritual level to us, right? You shouldn't have someone who is like much higher, much more advanced, and then having an accountability partner who is not not as advanced because then there will be a disparity between the two but if you have two people that are about the same level that want to help keep each other accountable um that you can do that but that's not the same thing as confessing your sins to one another so don't confess your sins to one another but if let's say both of you um are supposed to do a certain number of prostrations or both of you are supposed to read a certain number of chapters of the Bible, or both of you are supposed to pray certain prayers from the Igbe or so on, um, then you can uh, help to keep each other accountable on a daily basis, okay? Also, the accountability partner should be somebody of the same sex, uh, you know, unless it's someone like your fiance or your spouse. Um, don't choose someone of the opposite sex, because that, again, will be a distraction, um, and, and, you know, will, will kind of, will not serve the purpose that um, we are seeking here. Also, if somebody is does not meet the the spiritual rule that they are um, that are they're trying to meet, like if somebody is not able to keep up with uh, with that, um, it's not your role to rebuke them, right? But simply, um, you know, uh, the fact that they're required to report to you um, what it is that they're doing is enough is enough motivation, right? But it's not your job really to rebuke them if they don't do it but it's more just like to help encourage them to do it because they know that they're going to be having to discuss this with uh, with somebody else also as an accountability partner part of your role is to encourage them to go and speak to their father of confession if there's a problem um so you know it, it, it's helping them it's encouraging them um it can be very valuable um but you have to pick the right person or else it might you know it might backfire in one way or the other why is the great fast 55 days? Okay, so we are now in the great fast, right? Um, the, the fast is made up of three distinct parts, 
okay? The first part, which is what we call preparation week, this is um, the first week at the beginning of the fast, okay? We call it preparation week. The, the, the second part of the fast, it's called the, the 40 days, okay? The, the holy 40 days. This is uh, the fast, uh, the part of the fast that, that we have to commemorate the 40 days that the Lord Christ fasted in the wilderness while he was being tempted by the devil. Actually, this coming Sunday is the, the temptation Sunday where we read the scripture where the Lord was tempted three times by the devil while he was um, fasting in the wilderness. Um, so this, this part of the fast, the 40 days fast. And then we have at the end of the fast, we have the Holy Week which is commemorating the last week of the life of the Lord Christ from the moment that he enters into Jerusalem on Hosanna Sunday, all the way through the crucifixion and the resurrection, okay? So these three parts together make up a total of 55 days, okay? It hasn't, al it hasn't always been this way. So the, the preparation week, the week at the beginning is something that was added, okay? Um, at some point in time, uh, after the, the, the great fast, uh, you know, was, was being practiced, was being fasted, the preparation week was something that was added. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And then also the great fast as a whole was originally separate from Holy Week. So you would have the great fast, which was 40 days, and then you would have the Holy Week at two different times. Okay. So it was seen that, um, Combining the 40 days fast with the, with the Holy Week was uh, something that was spiritually beneficial because after the period of the, the days of the 40 days fasting, you go right into Holy Week and then it ends with the Feast of the Resurrection kind of as the climax and culmination of all of that period of fasting. So what about the preparation week? Okay, um, there's a couple different ideas about why the preparation week was added, um, but the, the reason that seems the most like a reasonable, okay, and acceptable is that, so, so when it comes to fasting, right, so fasting has more than one component. There's a component of fasting related to abstinence, which means that um, in the morning, we don't eat or drink at all until a certain period, of, until, until a certain time of the day, okay, so that is period of abstinence, and that abstinence only uh, is done on weekdays, right, I think in one of the previous Q and A's, we talked about the idea that um, Saturdays and Sundays are considered joyful days because Saturday is the day after the crucifixion where the Lord Christ went into Hades to release those who are in prison there. And Saturday is the day of the resurrection. So we consider that Saturday and Sunday are joyful days. And for that reason, there is no abstinence on those days, okay? There's fasting, but there's no abstinence. So the, we still change the food that we eat, but we're not abstaining in the morning, okay? So um, the abstinence is only on the weekdays. So if you look at the number of Saturdays and Sundays in the fast, okay, it ends up being um, such that if we add another, uh, uh, you know, week at the beginning, right, of fasting, then it makes up for uh, the, the, the days that there is no abstinence allowed during the fast, okay? Um, so the total number of weekdays with abstinence, okay, are the 40 days, right? So, so if, we, if, we, if we count the number of abstinence days, okay, the number of days where you abstain in the morning as being 40 days, 
then it would add an additional week at the beginning of the fast to compensate for the fact that there is no Saturdays or Sundays. Um, so, so that's the reason why that week was added. Okay, um, that's that's one of the possibilities, and that's that's the one that kind of the church considers to be um, the most reasonable reason why that was added. Number three, why do we say that the first set of tablets were written by God's finger and not the second set? Uh, I believe that God also wrote the second set, referencing um, these two references in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Okay, so we do believe that both the first and second set were written by the finger of God. I'm not sure where you're, you're getting that information. Um, but actually, if you, um, if you read in the book by His Holiness Pope Shenouda, the book is called Contemplations on the Ten Commandments. It speaks about how they were written in the book of Genesis, and sorry, in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and God wrote them twice. The first time was on the two tablets that Moses broke when he came down from the mountain and saw that the people were worshiping idols, the golden calf. Um, and the second time on the two tablets, um, like the former, former ones. So this is in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So specifically for the second set, if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, at the time the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments. So here he is referring to God. God wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing. Um, also in Exodus 34, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So it's pretty clear here from the scripture that God is the one who wrote both the first and the second. Okay, and this is what we believe. This is what His Holiness Pope Shenouda also mentioned in his book, um, Contemplations on the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Number four. In the paradise of the monks, there is a saying that says the middle path saved many. What does that mean? So here, this is this middle path is speaking about a balance between two extremes. Okay, the middle path is a balanced spiritual discipline. Okay, so what are the two extremes? One extreme is a complete absence of any kind of spiritual effort, any kind of asceticism, any kind of fasting, any type of self-control. Right. It's essentially like hedonism. OK, this is one extreme. The other extreme is extreme asceticism, like asceticism beyond our ability. OK, like, you know, not being like asceticism to the point that is so strict and so severe that we as human beings are not able to um, to follow it. And of course, this is different for each person, you know. Like one person, let's say, is able to abstain during the great fast. One person is able to abstain from food and water until, let's say, 6 p.m., okay? Another person can barely do noon, you know? So, so what is considered extreme for one person might not be extreme for another person. It's based on the, their, their spiritual level. And we tend to oscillate between these extremes, you know? We tend to... You know, whenever we have kind of like a zeal and we decide, desire to like, you know, 
grow in our in our spiritual life you know a lot of times we're thinking to ourselves you know what i'm going to start you know fasting until evening and i'm going to do prostrations and i'm going to read 10 chapters of the bible every day and i'm going to pray the entire egg every day and i'm going to do this and this you know so so maybe for me that's not my capability right and <clears throat> even attempting to do that extreme could cause me to you know fail and then be discouraged because i'm not able to follow through with this spiritual practice and that would tend to make me want to give up completely and then i fall into the other extreme right which is complete lack of spiritual effort okay so um the idea here of uh the middle path is what is reasonable is what is in the middle between these two extremes it's not so lax that it doesn't require me to push myself but at the same time it is not so difficult where i can never follow it right um and and this balance this moderation is actually in in a lot of ways more difficult than the other the other extremes right because the the, the moderation requires discernment and it requires that we do something but we do it in a, in a limited amount right and when you think about um like a lot of things that we do in our life right it, it tends to be hard to do that like let's say somebody has like a favorite tv show okay and they they like to watch that show on netflix or whatever something online so ask yourself like you have let's say 10 episodes of that show and you want to watch the show it is harder to watch one or two episodes of the show and then stop right you know, it's easier almost to say, well, I'm not even going to watch the show at all, or I'm going to watch all 10 episodes at once. Because when you watch just a couple episodes, it takes some self-control to say, you know what, I have other things I need to do now. So I'm going to stop this activity and I'm going to do something different, right? That's moderation. And moderation isn't always the easiest thing. Um, uh, same thing happens maybe with tithing, right? Like some people might not tithe at all, and other people, when they feel convicted of tithing, they might want to tithe even beyond their ability to tithe, like beyond the 10% even, right? So again, there, is, there, there needs to be a moderation. Like an example that I thought of um, is Saint uh, Baisa, right? Saint Baisa, she was a very holy and righteous woman, right? And she, had, she was very wealthy. She had a lot of money. And so she decided that she was going to give away this money through feeding the poor. And so she would invite the poor like into her home and she would you know hold for them like lavish feasts and all of this stuff as a service to them okay which was good right but at some point she ran out of money and when she ran out of money she couldn't find money to live and when she couldn't find money to live she actually became a harlot right so this is an example of someone who tried to do something good but beyond their ability to do and in the end it caused them to fall into sin because it was not at their level, what not, not what they were capable of doing. So we need to find the middle path. <clears throat> and like I said, the middle path is different for each person, right? The middle path is not the same thing for each person. Um, my middle path and your middle path are not necessarily the same. So when we, when we speak to our father of confession and he knowing, you know, knowing us can help us to determine what is the middle path what is something that is not so low that, are, that it requires no effort? And what is something that's not so difficult that it's beyond my ability to do? 
and, and to stay in this middle path is, is very wise, right? Because it is pushing ourselves, but it is not to the, to the limit where we are um, like, like trying to do something so difficult. And actually, even in some cases, even if we are able to do the, 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 the difficult, right? Even if we are able to do what is, you know, closer to that upper extreme, what might happen to us, right? Is that we fall into pride is that when we find ourselves doing it, right? There are some times where people, you know, they want to fast in extreme ways or they want to do extreme spiritual activities or they want to give up, you know, uh, so much of their wealth, right? And, and it might not be the wise thing because let's say that I am successful in doing that. But what happens to me is I, I start to get very proud of myself and look at me, I'm able to do this and this. And I begin to compare myself with other people. And this in itself is something that damages us. This in itself actually makes us fall away from God because we begin to trust in ourselves and imagine ourselves to be so righteous and we begin to judge um, others and so on. So this is again why the middle path is, is important, right? And, and we should stick to the middle path. <clears throat> Number five, why do we light candles in front of the icons of the saints? So, um, this is an, a good question, and um, I kind of I, I took some time to 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 write and to present um, all of the the really the uses of various lights and candles in the church, you know, because we see a lot of uses of candles, um, and and light has different meanings um, in the church. So we'll talk a little bit about about these, right? Because we use candles and prayers during the Bible readings in front of icons in the altar. Um, in the sanctuary in general. Um, and so the, there's always light in the church. So what are these different uses of lights and candles and, and what do they mean? Okay. Um, so the first is um, the Bible it calls the church the golden lampstand in the book of Revelation. Okay. St. John, the author of the book of Revelation, he says that the Lord Christ is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And the Lord said, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches, okay? So the church is the lampstand, okay? The, 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 the church itself, right, is a lampstand. Like it's illuminating. It's illuminating the light of God, right, to the world, okay? So the church resembles heaven. And because it is the house of God, right, God's dwelling place, um, this is, uh, you know, similar to what uh, Jacob said. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the church resembles heaven, and because it resembles heaven, it must be illuminated like, like heaven, like heaven is illuminated. So because the church is, is heavenly, right? You know, sometimes we say that the church is the first floor of heaven. Um, so that's why it's lit, okay? Also, the lights in the church represent angels. Um, and, and these angels that are filling the house of God, okay? Um, the angels are called angels of light. They are luminous. And so because the church is full of angels, um, they, the, the, the church is also illuminated with the light, these angelic lights. Um, also, the lights um, symbolize the saints, right? We know in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when the Lord said, let your light so, so shine before men, right, that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in, in heaven. So these good works, right, that are the good works of the saints, okay, are illuminating the church, okay, 
because when the, the saints are filling the church, the light coming from them is illuminating the church with the good works of Christianity, okay? Um, also in Matthew 13, the Bible says, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, right? We are the, we are the righteous, we are the believers. We are shining forth as the sun. So again, we are filling the house of God and we are the believers praying in the church. So the church should be illuminated um, always with light. Um, uh, the church also should be filled with light because of God's presence in it, right? God is light and the Lord Christ said, I am the light of the world. So because the Lord is present in the church, the church is also lit. Um, also, the, the church is like made after the pattern of the tabernacle um, in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was full of lights and the lights actually were never put out. There were lights always illuminating the tabernacle um, in Exodus 27. It says, and you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually, right? So the, the, the light in the tabernacle was burning continually, always lit. And so the church, which is made after the pattern of the tabernacle should be filled with lights as well. Again, uh, in the same way, following the same pattern. Um, lighting lamps uh, symbolizes the constant readiness. Like we are always watchful. We are always alert, right? We are always like filled with the Holy Spirit awaiting the coming of the Lord, okay? Um, the Lord Christ had said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. So we like have our lights burning, waiting for the coming of the Lord, always attentive and watchful and waiting for his coming. Okay. And the Lord gave us the parable of the five wise virgins um, whose lamps were burning while the lamps of the five foolish virgins went out. The difference between the two is that the, the five wise virgins, they were prepared, they were ready, they, they had their lights burning. It's like they were ready to go. Whereas those five foolish virgins, their, their lamps went out. They were not uh, ready when the master came, okay? And the oil of these lamps, right, that are allowing the lamps to burn symbolize the work of the Holy Spirit, right? The oil is what allows the lamp to burn. Without the oil, the lamp would go out. So this constant burning symbolizes the constant watchfulness in keeping the heart, the heart like attached to the Holy Spirit, like the Holy Spirit is within us, working and active, symbolizing uh, the, the the here in, in the symbolized by these lamps, right? So as long as the Holy Spirit is in us and is working, then our lamps are lit, okay? But if the Holy Spirit is not working actively within us, then it is like our lamps go out. So we are always keeping the lights um, burning um, in the church. Um, the, there's also lamps or, or candles that are lit during the reading of the gospel. Okay, and Psalm 19 says, uh, your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Sorry, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Also um, in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, it says the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the word of God, okay, is a lamp. The word of God illuminates. The word of God reveals like hidden and secret things. And it is a light to our path to direct us in the way that we should walk. So that's why also we always have candles that are, are lit 
during the reading of the gospel to remind us that this word is, is a word of illumination to us, okay? Um, and then also, uh, as is asked in the question, as, as far as the light that we light before the saints, right? It reminds us that the saints also were lights in their generation, right? They were like candles illuminating around them. And of course, now we, we're, we're, we're not using so much the, the candles, the wax candles. But if you think about the wax candles, as the light is burning and these wax candles, the candle itself is melting, right? So it's like the candles are, and these saints were like, were like melting. They were suffering. They were sacrificing themselves in order to bring this light to the world, which is another like meditation that we have about these, these wax candles that they themselves are dissolving as they are lighting the, the world for us. Also, you can think of the candle that is kind of standing there before the icon is also representing us, like the worshiper, that we light the candle and we are like standing before God um, and, and, and praying to God uh, continually, right? So it's like when we go and we light a candle, we are, we are also represented in that candle praying to God before the icon. So there's a lot of, you know, symbolism for lights um, in, in the scripture, um, really in, in so many ways. Number six, what are some red flags that should be considered deal breakers for courtship? Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that there's one thing that I would say are, you know, is deal breakers, but there's many things that need to be considered. Um, and each situation is a little different. So what are some important things to look for <clears throat> for this question? Like when looking for someone to marry, one important thing is it should have a strong spiritual life like a life of repentance, um, a desire to grow, um, the ability to admit when they are wrong, um, someone who is quick to apologize. You know, something very important is a person who wants to please God, right? Because we all have weaknesses and we will all fail. And we will all make mistakes. But if a person wants to please God, then they will be easily corrected because once they are made aware of their mistake, they will admit it and they will turn and they will make an effort to change. They will apologize and so on. But if a person's desire is only to justify themselves, then even when they are confronted with their mistake, they will refuse to accept that this is a mistake or they will justify themselves and explain why this is you know, necessary or not. So the, the idea of what is the standard, right? What is the target? What is the goal of, of the two people? If the two people have the goal of wanting to be pleasing to God, of wanting to follow in God's commandments, or wanting to live for God, then, then the relationship can work. Because both people, even though they fail and make mistakes, are walking toward the same target, the same goal. You know, when they have children, they also want to raise children in the same way. They have the same activities because they are like spiritual activities, because they are, they have the same mindset, okay? But if the two people have different goals and different targets, <clears throat> then this will become a constant source of conflict every day. You know, maybe one person wants to go to the church. The other person doesn't have any interest in going to the church. One person wants to raise their children to pray every day, to read the Bible every day, to go to church, take communion, to go to Sunday school, where for another person, that's kind of not important, you know? So, so having our own like personal spiritual life where we are, repentant when we are trying to please God also we are serving the Lord in whatever capacity that we can all those things are important to look for in another person 
<clears throat> something else that's important is to have good communication um, because um, men and women have different uh, ways of communicating uh, for the most part. And so it's good for us to understand ourselves and to understand how the other sex is communicating, okay? Um, someone who is able to communicate well is able to explain their feelings, is able to explain the, their decisions, is able to talk about, you know, things that are in common in their relationship, which makes the relationship much easier um, and also makes conflict resolution much easier, which is the next point. Conflict resolution is very important because when there is conflict, right, then um, this is the time when I have to listen and I have to sometimes admit when I'm wrong um, and I, I have to avoid things like uh, losing my temper and yelling and abuse and, you know, all the things that could happen when there is conflict, right? This is where um, really the, the relationship can, can either be strengthened because we resolve conflict effectively and lovingly, or the, the relationship can be destroyed because sometimes people, the, the way they try to resolve conflicts is actually more damaging than the conflict itself, you know? Like some people might yell, some people might throw things, some people might be physically abusive, some people like, you know, like all kinds of things that they will regret later, right? Because they're not able to be calm and patient and, and control themselves in the midst of conflict, okay? Which again goes to the next point, which is self-control. Like I, I need to be self-controlled. You know, even when I'm very emotional, I have to, I have to know how to be self-controlled. I have to control my, my mouth, what I say, I have to control my, my, you know, my physical response. I have to control my, you know, some people like when, when the midst of conflict resolution, if they're upset at another person, they'll hurl insults, you know, that are very painful. And those insults don't just disappear. You know, even after the conflict is over, like the wounds of those insults will last for a very long time. So someone who knows how to resolve conflict well with patience and, and prayerfully, also someone who wants to resolve conflicts. You know, sometimes people just want to avoid the topic altogether. We don't even want to talk about it. We just want to pretend like it never happened. And, and maybe that's what one person wants, but the other person, they want to talk about it. They want to discuss it. They want to find some kind of, you know, resolution, um, an agreement on the topic. And when they find that the other person is not wanting to do so, it can lead them to be frustrated. And again, it causes a separation in the relationship. Um, another thing to look for, um, you know, when, when you meet someone is what type, how, how, what type of other relationships do they have? For instance, how, how is their relationship with their parents? How is their relationship with their friends? How is their the other relationships in their life? Because this will give you an indication of the kind of relationships that they have with people, which likely will, um, you know, be uh, similar to the relationship they would have with you. Now, there are always ex exceptional situations, you know, and there's always situations where maybe the other person um, doesn't, you know, have a good relationship with them. And that's why there's a break in the relationship. But as, as a general sense, what would other people in general say about this person? Do other people feel like this person is a good person, is a kind person, is a loving person, is an understanding person? Or do they see this person as a difficult person, as a person who's hard to deal with and so on? So those are just some things to look for. Of course, I mean, you could write books about this whole topic, but um, those are just briefly some points that you should consider. Number seven. 
In the last Bible study on March 11th, your reverend said that the church members should be closer to us even than our own family members. Would you please elaborate more on what that means? I always thought that serving one's family should be the first priority even before serving in the church. So I would like Utsek to please help me understand that better. So we were studying this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. This is the verse we were studying. So it says what? Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Okay. So St. Paul is saying that while Christ lived on earth, okay, we knew him. The apostles had a relationship with him as a human being. Okay. But the Lord was taken from them, right? Because he died and was resurrected. So he's no longer living with them on earth. But the relationship that they have with him is now in the spirit. It is not a physical relationship, but it is a spiritual relationship. And that spiritual relationship is still very strong, right? Because ultimately the relationship that we all have with God is a spiritual relationship, okay? So the spiritual relationship we have with God is greater than the physical relationships that we have, okay? If you look at the example in Matthew chapter 12, right? In this, uh, in this uh, passage, the Lord is um, in the midst of a crowd um, uh, and, and, and the, his family, like his mother and his brothers or his cousins, they come wanting to speak with him. Okay, so we read this, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's not downplaying here the importance of the physical relationship, the family, right? But he is saying as believers, okay, we are all a family. Like we are all one family in Christ. The spiritual relationship in the body of Christ is greater than the physical relationship, okay? For instance, when the Pharisees were speaking to him about this scenario where this woman was married to seven men, and then in heaven, whose wife will she be? So the Lord responded to them, and he said, what? Well, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Again, saying what? That the spiritual relationship that as believers we have together is going to abide. We will always be the body of Christ. But the physical relationships that we have here on earth are only temporary. They, they are only going to be for a time here on earth, right? And in heaven, there will be the spiritual relationship without the physical relationship, okay? And marriage actually is the, the most intimate of human relationships, right? But the Lord made it clear that even this relationship doesn't exist in heaven. So our unity and our communion with one another is a spiritual one, right? Our bond is a spiritual bond that is even stronger than the physical bond. So this does not mean that we do not serve our family. This does not mean actually God gave us a stewardship to care for one another. Like our family, like parents, for instance, are given a stewardship to care for their children. And yes, that relationship needs to be very strong and they need to you know, focus very much on that relationship. I'm not trying to say we don't serve our family. What I am saying is that our relationship as the body of Christ is 
is even stronger than the physical relationships that we have because that is going to remain forever eternally as opposed to the physical relationships which will not our our the context of our relationships will change once we go to heaven okay so here when saint paul is speaking to the corinthians and he's asking them to be of one mind he's asking them to be united together he's asking them to be the body of Christ together, that we are all one in the body, right? We all come to church, we all take communion, we are made to be one with God and one with one another, right? So the way that we serve each other, even the members that are outside of our family, right? Because we tend to focus so much on, you know, serving the people that we know, serving our existing family members. But the church is a family, the church is, in the church we should be serving even those that we do not know even those who are new, who are not blood relatives or friends that we have known for a long time. You know, in the early church, people would sell all that they had and give it to the church to feed those whom are members of the church, not in their own families, right? This is one of the, the services that the church offers. And this is the importance of the unity in the church and the love in the church. Sadly, oftentimes this does not happen. Sadly, people will judge one another so people will be enemies with one another. And the church does not fulfill that role of being a place where all people are united together. Instead, it might be filled with division. And that was one of the problems with the Corinthian church. And one of the things that St. Paul was preaching against is not to have division in the church, but that we are all united together as one in the body of Christ. So this is one, a very important thing that the church should be focusing on is how do we show love to one another as a congregation? How should I sacrifice of myself, of my time, of my things for the, for the sake of other people in the church, even if they are not close family members, even if they are not close friends, even if they are, you know, even newcomers or strangers, right, that are coming to the church. This is our role. This is the role of the church to be members of Christ, to be the body of Christ, is that our relationship in Christ, the spiritual relationship, is stronger than the physical relationship. Because maybe somebody who walks in the door, I have no physical relationship with that person. I mean, I, I've just met that person. I don't know anything about them, right? But my spiritual obligations to them as being a member of the body of Christ would, should make me to feel like I have a duty to serve that person because we are one, right? As opposed to thinking that, you know, I'm only going to focus on socializing with my people. I'm only going to focus on talking with my people. I'm only going to focus on helping my people. That concept of my people and my clique, that shouldn't exist in the church. In the church, we are all one. We should all serve one another um, as one. Number eight, is the prayer of Manasseh a part of the Orthodox Bible? Also, I heard that there was a controversy about the part that says, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you. Could you please explain that? So what is the background of this book? So yes, this is, a, this is a part of the Orthodox Bible. I think traditionally it was at the end of Second Chronicles is where um, this was, uh, was written, right? It is part of the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. We accept it in the Coptic Orthodox Church as part of the Bible, okay? Um, who was this man, Manasseh? So he was the 14th king of Judah after Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, So and he was actually one of the sons of Hezekiah, okay? 
And he became a king after the death of Hezekiah. He became a king at the age of 12, and he reigned for 55 years. So he was a king for a very long time. But while Hezekiah, his father, was a very righteous king, Manasseh was a very evil king. And he even undid the reforms that his father Hezekiah had made. Okay. And even though he lived as a very evil king, right? But, but toward the end of his life, he came to uh, repent. And this book, the prayer of Hezekiah, or this passage, I mean, the prayer of Hezekiah, uh, sorry, the prayer of Manasseh um, is like, uh, is, the, is, the, is the prayer that he prayed to God as a prayer of repentance. Okay. So one of the verses in this prayer, okay, which is in verse eight, says the following. It says, therefore, you, O Lord God of the righteous, have not given repentance for the righteous, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have given repentance for me, the sinner. Okay. So some people will look at this and say that this is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were sinless, okay, um, which of course we do not believe, right, because no person can be without sin, um, and actually if you read the verse, it's, it's not just re referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's referring to all of the righteous, because he says, therefore you, O Lord God of the, of the righteous, have not given repentance for the righteous, and then he mentions for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as examples of those who are righteous, so really, according to, if you take it literally, right, then he is saying that the righteous people never commit sin. And, and specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are righteous, did not commit sin. And so some people look at this, and they look at it literally, and they say, oh, well, this is wrong. And so we have to reject this book as not being a canonical part of the Bible for that reason. But when we read this, we don't, we don't take it in that way, okay? Actually, it, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see evidence of sin in their life. Uh, I mean, they were not perfect without sin. Okay, so what does it actually mean? What he means here is that in the final judgment, God has judged them to be righteous and, and, and God has like removed their sin from them, right? Because, because of his mercy. So he, here it's a, it's a prayer of humility. Like Manasseh is looking at himself and comparing himself to the patriarchs, comparing himself to the leaders of Israel, comparing himself to others who are righteous and he's saying, you know, I am the least of them. I am the worst of them. I am the one who needs the greatest mercy from God, right? This is, this is a humble prayer, asking God to have mercy on him. We shouldn't take it literally, you know? Like, I'll give you another example. Like St. Paul, when he is, you know, speaking, and he says what? That he is the chief of sinners. Like St. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. So can we look at that and say, well, is he actually the chief of sinners? Like, is he worse than, you know, all these other people that we might list from the Bible? And the answer is no, he is not the chief of sinners. Definitely. Like, he is, he is not the, the worst sinner that ever lived, for sure, right? But he, when he is praying it, he is, he's, he's saying this out of humility. He's saying this, asking truly for the mercy of God, that he is not considering himself to be better than anyone else. It is not a statement. It's not like a factual statement. Right? It is a statement that is offered to God out of a repentant heart, out of a heart that is someone who like really uh, identifies with their own weaknesses and their own sins and truly sees himself in this way. Right? And here Manasseh is also seeing himself. He's like saying to God, you know, 
um, who am I compared to these righteous men, right? It's almost like these righteous men were without sin compared to me, right? But it's not actually saying that he is without sin, right? It's, 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 that's not, it, we shouldn't take it in that literal sense, okay? Um, so, and, and, and also like, this is a prayer, right? Like this is a prayer that's being offered by a man and the Bible is recording this prayer. There's nothing here that's speaking about whether his statements are true or not, right? There's a lot of people in the Bible who say all kinds of things. Even if they say something that's wrong, that doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. The Bible is, is, is recounting what was said. So this is really what Manasseh said, right? What's wrong with him saying, I mean, even if he says something that's completely false, let's say, theoretically. Well, that doesn't say anything about the veracity of, of, of the fact that he said this and that it's in the Bible, right? So, so we shouldn't we shouldn't look at this and 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 take this so literally. Instead, we should take it in a, as a beautiful prayer that Manasseh's operating. And I encourage everyone to read it. it really, the, it's a very beautiful prayer. The, the the beautiful prayer that he is praying to God. This man who lived in sin for so many years, and he's asking God to um, to restore him, to have mercy on him. Um, and really, it's a prayer that we can all pray and ask God to have mercy on us and look at us ourselves as being we are the chief of sinners, the way that St. Paul also sees himself. Number nine, why do the priests, clergy, consecrated people, and monastics dress the way that they do? So traditionally, um, priests have always dressed differently than the rest of the people. And if you go all the way back to the, the first priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Testament, that God had um, chosen the tribe of Levi to be priests, he told them they need to dress in a certain way. And, and their dress had uh, certain symbolic meanings, right? That when you would look at their dress, you would see that they had different, you know, like it meant something. But regardless of the symbolism specifically to that dress, there was um, a, a distinction between the way that they dressed and the way that the other people dressed. And why is that important? Well, because the gift of the priesthood that is given, whether it be to the Levites in the Old Testament or given to um, the New Testament priesthood, it is an invisible gift, right? It's a gift that God gives to someone. And what is the proof or the sign that that person actually has this gift? Well, it is, it is invisible, it is a mystery, right? So there is nothing visible that when you look at a person with the gift of priesthood, that you could look at them and say, yes, this person has the gift of priesthood. Well, if the, the idea of the priesthood is to serve the people, like that is what the priesthood is about. The priest is an intercessor between God and the people. The priest is the one who receives the confessions of the people. The priest is the one who prays um, the liturgy and, and, and turns the bread and wine into the sacrifice and the body and blood of Christ. So the priest has very specific function and role, and it's for the service of the salvation of the people. So for that reason, we have to identify those priests. Like, who are the people that have this gift? Who are the people I can go and confess with? Who are the people that can pray liturgy? Who are those people, right? So just as in the Old Testament, it was very clear who those people are based on their dress and what distinguished them. Um, the, also in the New Testament, the priest wears certain clothes that is different and unique from the rest of the people, okay? And this is not only during the church services because the priest is a priest all the time. You know, I can tell you like sometimes I'm just walking somewhere 
somebody identifies me as a priest, like in a store or wherever, and they talk to me about some situation. I remember one time I was uh, actually on vacation with my family and there was a crowd of people there and there was a man there who saw me and he asked me to pray for him right there on the spot. And he talked to me about some problem that he was having right there on the spot. It only happened because he knew that I was a priest. And if I was wearing regular clothes, then that would have never happened. I, I remember feeling at that time, like happy that he, that I was there for him in that moment, right? Even though this was not in a, in a church, in an Orthodox church as a part of any liturgical service or anything like that. It was just randomly in the, in, in, in the normal life in the, in the world, right? So the fact that, the fact that a priest can be identified as such is, is an important thing. The, the, the priests actually, um, they used to wear white clothing um, in, in, the, in the Coptic history. They used to wear white, um, but they were made to wear black as kind of a humiliation after the Islamic invasion of Egypt. The, the, they, they, they forced the priests to, instead of wearing white, in, to wear black. But the priest accepted this, the church accepted this as a symbol of the suffering of the priesthood and as a symbol that the priest is, has died to the world and he's meant to be an example to others, calling people to repentance, to relationship with God. And, and we accepted this symbol of dying to the world and continue that even after this persecution, uh, forcing the priest to wear black had ended, continue to wear black. Um, so um, this is traditionally the dress of the priest since the very beginning uh, and, and we maintain it up until this day. Number 10, and this will be our last question. Um, why in a wedding ceremony does the priest take Sarah as an example of how a wife should treat her husband? So we know that Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, uh, she lived a very humble life. Like why? God, whenever he would be giving commandments, okay, he would speak to Abraham, right? He would tell him, for instance, leave your place where you dwell and move to another place or take your son, Isaac, right? And go and offer him as a sacrifice, right? Imagine that a man, a married man, they have a son and, and he goes and tells his wife, I'm taking our son to go and offer him as a sacrifice to God, right? God is the one who, who spoke to Abraham and told him this, okay? So imagine Sarah or this woman, like his wife, imagine what her response would be. Like, do you think she, it would be so easy for her to say, yes, take our son. If God told you to go and take our son, to go and offer him as a sacrifice, or if God told you that we should pack up all of our things, all of our family, all of our servants, everything, all of our, our livestock, everything that we have. If God told you this, that we're gonna move from here to a place a thousand miles away, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it for you. I'm going to do it because God said it to you. Is that maybe when you think in our modern times, the way that any wife would respond to her husband? Or maybe she would have a hundred questions. Or maybe she would resist it. Or maybe she would argue with her husband and say, no, you, you imagine the whole thing. Or maybe she would say, I will, I will refuse to do it unless God appears again and tells me personally. Right? We can imagine all kinds of questions and resistance that would happen. Right? Um, whenever, you know, Abraham is telling his wife, God has said that we must do this and this, 
and the, the, the wife would simply not accept it so easily, right? So she, for us, is a model of humility and a model of submission um, because she believed um, that God really did speak on the mouth of her husband and that her husband really was the leader of the family and that she followed him, believing that God was speaking through him, believing that he really heard the voice of God. So believing that she was obedient to God and following him, even though she didn't necessarily hear those commandments directly from God herself, okay? So a beautiful model of marriage is one where the husband is a God-fearing man, where the husband is one who hears the voice of God, where the husband is the one who seeks to please God, where the husband is a spiritual leader that wants to bring his whole family to God, where the husband is a man who loves his wife with the, with the love of God, right? And has the spiritual authority to lead his wife and his children closer to God and to follow the commandments of God, right? And for this to work, the wife then in this beautiful model of marriage, right? Would have to submit to the godly authority in her husband. Right? So this is why both Abraham and Sarah are praised, right? Because they are perfect models of God's commandment in Ephesians chapter five. In Ephesians chapter five, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here speaking about the relationship, right? Between the husband and wife. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. This is exactly what Sarah did. She submitted to her husband as she would have to God because she believed that God was speaking through the mouth of her husband. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So just as the church is to submit to God, the wife is to submit to the husband. This is what St. Paul said. This is what Sarah did with Abraham. This is why we praise Sarah in the, uh, in the crowning ceremony. St. Paul continues in Ephesians 5, and he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the type of authority that God gives to the husband over the wife is not cruelty. It is not just for the sake of control. It is not um, as an excuse for the husband to somehow let his anger to be, you know, like, like uh, released on the wife or that he is some kind of like um, overruling um, dictator. Because this is not what Christ is. This is not what Christ is to the church. Christ is not a dictator to the church. Christ is the one who sacrificed himself um, for the sake of the church. And this is the type of love that the husband also is called for. And again, this is why this model of marriage is the one that God ordained, because this is the model of the, 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 the God to his bride, which is the church. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. So it is a self-sacrificial love of the husbands to love their wives, but also it is a commandment from God for wives to submit themselves to their husbands as you do to the Lord.
So we look at the examples through history and through the scriptures of where there are uh, men and women who are married that fulfilled this model of marriage that God has ordained. And one that clearly comes to mind is Abraham and Sarah. And so we remind the couple that is getting married of what exactly is their role. What is it they have chosen? How is it they have chosen to live according to the biblical model of marriage? So, you know, our modern society, of course, doesn't believe this. Our, our modern society um, is, is against this, okay? But marriage is something that was not created by modern man. Marriage is not something that was created by man. It was created by God. The, 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 the concept of marriage existed even in the Garden of Eden, right? That when God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, he created them to have a certain roles and certain relationship. So you cannot have marriage apart from the biblical rules of marriage. And yes, we will hear from society all kinds of theories and all kinds of ideas and all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of whatever, okay? What, what, the question we should be asking is who created marriage? For what reason was it created? And what makes a successful marriage? Okay. And God tells us here, not only as a commandment, right? This isn't, this isn't just a rule book that we are to follow. God here is saying, this is what makes for a successful marriage. And, and, and this successful marriage is not designed to, to, to give, you know, one person or the other, um, like control and power over the other. No, it is a love of mutual, uh, it is a relationship of mutual love. It is a relationship of mutual submission as well, because he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here they are giving us the rules and the examples of what both the husbands and wives should be doing in a successful marriage. And I've talked to people who are successfully following this and they will tell you that this model of marriage is pure, is good, is successful, because this is what God made us to be. This is how God created marriage to be. And when we fulfill the law of God, we find there is success, there is peace, there is harmony, there is joy. Sadly, the world is against this model completely. And, and as the world tries to pursue something that is contrary to the word of God, they will find nothing but resistance, they will find nothing but divorce. They will find nothing but conflict, right? Because that is not the way that God intended marriage to be. So yes, we praise Sarah and Abraham. We praise Sarah for her amazing humility at being able to hear from her husband. We will take our son and offer him as a sacrifice. And she simply accepts this as this is coming from God. And may God grant all of us to have her humility and her faith, you know, and her obedience to God and believing that God is directing us um, in this way. Um, this is all the time that we have for today. Um, God bless you. Um, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for all the opportunities that you give us to learn about you and to strengthen our faith in you. Be with us, O Lord, during this time of the great fast and help us to draw closer to you in our spiritual life, to repent, to confess, to understand you more and more and to feel really and truly that you are the Lord of our life. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.